You can open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're going to uh, pick up a few chapters away from where we left off last week. And I want to talk this morning about something that is related to what we have been discussing these last few weeks about uh, godliness in families and how the Lord works in families throughout generations to, uh, to call His people to Himself. And He does this through imperfect folks like you and me. And we've seen that in the life of Joseph and his family, in his dad, uh, Jacob. And I wanted to look this morning at um, a couple a couple ideas. And they're, they're going to be questions and they're going to be somewhat open-ended. So interaction will certainly be appreciated, um, but also required for it to really be an interaction together. So uh, let's, let's pray together. We're going to be looking in Genesis 49 and 50 and then in the first part of Exodus. But let's pray together first. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day of worship that you have given us, a day of rest and a day of coming together as your people to lay aside our worldly cares that we could be in your presence. And we do desire, Lord, this morning that we would be in your presence, that you would fill each of us with your spirit, that as we open our Bibles, our hearts would be open as well, that you would teach us the gospel, that we would hear it and believe it, and that we wouldn't take our eyes quickly off of the truth that the Lord Jesus came to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, that we would be your children. Lord, we pray as we talk now uh, through some chapters in the book of Genesis, as we talk about family and sinfulness and about your generational uh, faithfulness to your church, that we would be encouraged to see our part in that story that you are writing. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, uh, we we ended out with Jacob and his family uh, moving to Goshen. And they were staying in, in a land close to Egypt, but they had the choicest of the land, as uh, Pharaoh called it. And we heard some words from Jacob saying, I didn't think that I would ever see your face again, Joseph, and here I am uh, being able to see with my own eyes your two sons. So he and all of his company, 70 persons total, Joseph included, have all moved. They are now adjacent to the land of Egypt. They are out of the land of Canaan. And I wanted to share with you uh, some words and and want to think for a, a bit this morning about God's faithfulness to families. And I, I just want to say it was particularly encouraging over the last few weeks to hear some feedback from some of you talk about how this has been something that's on your mind. It's been something that uh, you have thought through for your own family. And many times it can be easy to to be down about it, um, to look at either your family or the um, the faith of your children or your children's children and say, Lord, what are you, what is it that you're doing in my life? Um, what are you doing in my family? And I think that's why looking at stories like this in the Bible is particularly encouraging because we see that it's filled with stories of people who are sinful. There are some who are faithful. They seem to be walking with the Lord. And there are times when it ebbs and flows. And it's just like us. Uh, many times we come to the Bible and we think, well, this is the this is the record of the superhuman Christians who were able to walk with God even in the midst of difficulty and they never had pain. And that's not true. The Bible is the story of God's faithfulness to his people. 
And he brings them through as a faithful heavenly father. I want to look at the words that Jacob said to his sons in Genesis 49. And the idea that I want to, I guess, kind of move around is some of the words that sometimes are quoted when we talk about our own failures, either as fathers or as mothers, parents, um, and the words that I'm specifically thinking about, not of Jacob's here, but uh, words that when you see a failure in yourself, that God visits the sins of the fathers on the, the second and third generation, or the third and the fourth generation, or so on and so forth. And we can easily see, well, I can, I can see that in so-and-so years ago, and that's why it's happening here now. And so I, I want to talk about that. What is it that we hand down to our children? What is it that we give to them of who we are, how we grew up, um, how we embraced faith or didn't, how we were raised and what we saw at home, what was love and affection, uh, what was correction or anger, uh, what was grief, um, and how we share those things with others. And I, I particularly right now want to look at two things. Um, and we're not going to go through all 12 of the sons. We wouldn't have time to do that this morning. But I want to look at two um, specifically because it is interesting to see how what we, what we hold in ourselves and how God has made us is, in a sense, passed down to our children. So it says in, in Genesis 49, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you, What shall befall you in the last days? Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Simeon, and this is in verse 5. Simeon and Levi, instruments of cruelty, are their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly, for in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger. For it is fierce and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So remember remember those two family names, Simeon and Levi, because that will be significant in a few moments. Then in verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So just these three sons is who we'll look at this morning. Um, and hold your finger there just for a minute. And, and can somebody just say what was one of the, the overarching characteristics of Simeon and Levi? What was it that Jacob spoke so strongly against? Anger. Anger, Anger was a problem for them. Look over in uh, the book of Exodus. Chapter 1. It says here, and you think of all the struggle and everything that took place and all that happened 
and all the record that must have existed, the decisions that Joseph made and what he did to help preserve uh, Pharaoh's kingdom during the famine and all of the wealth that they enjoyed. It says in in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1, Now these were the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. And it lists them. It says that the in, in verse 6, And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. So everyone is gone. <clears throat> but the children of Israel were fruitful and exceedingly abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, another Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph. So it doesn't mean that he didn't know of him, but he did not know him uh, personally. He must have known who Joseph was. He must have known that the famine that had existed so many years ago uh, was able to be avoided in Egypt because of the wisdom that God had given this man, Joseph. So it says that they oppressed the people of Egypt. The people of Egypt oppressed the children of Israel who lived in the land with them. They made them servants. And that, that is basically what you get throughout the rest of chapter 1. And he told the midwives uh, to not allow the babies to be uh, to exist of the, the Israelite children. They weren't, to, they weren't to stay. And the midwives didn't obey, did they? Because the Hebrew, it says in verse 19, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. So it's not our fault they're being born. By the time we get there, they're saying uh, they're already there. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied. People of Israel multiplied and grew. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So that's the circumstance ending, ending in the end of book of Genesis with chapter one of Exodus. That's the circumstance for a man to be born and, and who was born into this kind of um, existence and these rules. In Exodus chapter 2 verse 1. And a man of the house of who? Levi. And what did we say about the house of Levi? His, his issue that Judah, that Jacob spoke against was his anger. And what do we know that Moses did? Killed a man rashly, didn't he? So, am I right or wrong to draw a straight line between Exodus chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 49? It was in his family line to be an angry man, to deal rashly. Um, it was part of his DNA. Now, I don't think that that's anything, if you're not from Levi, you don't struggle with anger. But particularly, that was something that, that the Lord tamed in his heart. It was something that he had that was real, and it was untamed, but God did did change him. So I said a few moments ago that I wanted to, to talk about these two families, and the family of Levi and the family of Judah, and this idea that the sins of the father are visited on the third and fourth generation, that we pass down to our children things that we wish maybe were different about us, uh, but we know they will have to they will have to deal with them and work on them they will have to reckon with them so let me let me ask you um, is is that a, a truly biblical idea number one is that a biblical idea that we pass down to our children the good and the bad of ourselves I see some yeses yep yeah, it is 
It is. It is true. I, as a young boy, and I would say probably around 10, I remember my dad saying that there are things that uh, my parents never talked about, his parents, my grandparents, uh, never talked about much. But he said, I hope that these are things that you and your brother and sister can work out. And he never really spoke to specifics other than some of the difficulties, anger and uh, a dealing with a, a bad temper or not being able to show affection or love in a, a very visible or even verbal way. It just wasn't something they did in that generation. My grandfather was born in 1927. Um, during um, the, the time of the Great Depression, he had multiple uh, brothers and uh, it, life was different then. There was a, a significant struggle. Uh, they were very poor. They were farmers. And so a lot of that was carried into how he raised his children. His dad um, was not very affectionate. He was actually quite harsh. And so that was passed down through the generations um, in, in my own family. And I'm saying this not to certainly not to make this lesson about me, but just to maybe stoke the, the memories for you of the things in your family. Uh, what are the things that you that you maybe have passed down to your children that um, are you have you given them the tools to work with it? Are they able to work through those things? Are the things that you've never been able to level with? Um, I think one of the things that's easy to not see in stories like this in the Bible is that all of these things that are interpersonal or issues in family somehow automatically magically get resolved. And we saw last week they don't. Do they? Family issues don't just immaterialize into thin air. Uh, they are either worked on in the gospel or they stay there, right? Isn't that true? You, you work on them in the gospel by God's grace or, or they stay there. And we continue to struggle with them and pass them on. And let me, let me just ask, how do you, what does that mean? I just said either we work on them in the gospel or they stay there. What does it mean to work on something like Levi's anger in the gospel? And I'm picking on one because I can identify with it quite a bit. But how, how do you work on anger in the gospel? In, in the context of a family? Because particularly what we're, we're talking about in these weeks. have to admit that it's there, Pam said. This was a, and, and maybe I, I should have gone over this a bit more, but this is a pretty interesting sit down. This is, here's Jacob talking to his adult sons. And he says, here, let me tell you how it's going to be. And he, he wasn't saying it as though it was, this is what I think is going to happen. He's saying, this is who I see that you are. Um, this is a man who God extended his covenant to and promised blessings to and faithfulness and his own presence. And he's speaking to his sons. So he's saying, son, Simeon, Levi, you have done this in the past and I see this as an issue in your heart. Pam is saying the way that you, the first way that you begin to deal with something like anger in a family is you've got to admit that it's there. That's a pretty... That's a pretty difficult conversation. Um, and I think it's a difficult conversation in our day particularly because so many of the things that we say to one another 
um, as we hear them, we don't just hear that there is um, scientific, think of a laboratory with uh, things in front of you. We, we're not just talking about things that we see uh, in front of us, outside. Um, no one would deny that I've got a Bible sitting here on the podium or my phone is here. Uh, but to say, I see in you this, how do we hear that? Criticism. Criticism. We don't hear... Um, the sky is blue. We hear you have anger and it's a problem. We hear judgment, right? It's one of the first things that we, we hear. Even It's because of our sinfulness, right? We can't even hear correctly. And if we can't hear one another correctly who we can see, how can we hear God who we cannot see? How can we hear Him correctly? And I, I, I do believe that if we are to hear one another correctly, the first thing that we have to do, what Miss Pam said, is to admit before the Lord, this is an issue that I have. And yours might not be anger. It may be uh, something else. It may be control or fear or people-pleasing, whatever it is. Um, it, it could be any of those things or some sort of weird combination of them. But if I'm not able to admit before the Lord that I have this, how in the world can I ever hope to deal with that in my family? But don't you think it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can admit that and talk about it? So it's, I find it difficult if someone is not a believer in your family mm-hmm. to talk about it. If they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, oh, you can only deal with what, what you have. That's right. You, know you can't deal with what they have and what's going on. So, I don't know, I guess it's just... I feel like that's a crucial part of it because you can talk until you're blue in the face and share mm-hmm. your whole heart and admit where I may have gotten this, you know, I don't know. We face the whole, it's, it's in my DNA. I've heard that quite a bit from mm-hmm. specific members of my family. I'm, I'm just, it's, it's cre- I'm created this way to have this, mm-hmm. this problem. And so that, that's where that discussion goes kind of off the radar mm-hmm. that we can't really even just talk about it because it's just the way I'm made. It's interesting, though, to say that, and I agree with what you said. I think it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that anyone would be able to mouth those words and believe them in their heart. Um, that one of the first things that we admit coming to the Lord in repentance is, "I have, I have not only sinned, but I am a sinner. Not only have I transgressed the law of God and fallen incredibly short." But I am a sinner to my core. Original sin is real, and I carry it with me day in and day out in everything that I do, even in the good things, supposed good things that I do. Uh, they are tainted by my sin. Jim, you were going to... In this area of conversation, you need to remember that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, mm-hmm. but it also gives the strength to overcome the sin. Mm-hmm. So when we are thinking about this particular situation or sin or any others, we are totally uh, locked up to the Holy Spirit to do the work that Mm -hmm. He is convicting us of. And by His Word, by the Word, it tells us this this you need to um, mortify then, but He is the one that's going to, to give the strength and the power and the agreement with him that is a sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, what makes me think about it in handling conflict and I have conflict in my own family is that my words do have weight. 
So my words either push people towards fear or mm-hmm. faith. And so when there is that judgment, I have to really think about the person I'm talking to and realize that I actually can guide the conversation, I can navigate it, and actually land it to the destination I want it to go. Mm-hmm. I have the tools to do that, clearly. And it doesn't matter if they're a Christian or not. But my words have weight. And so I really have to think, can they even hear what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because often, the way that I color my words, man, it, it's like shooting arrows at them, right? Mm-hmm. When it's not my intention, but my words come across that way. So I really have to think about, well, how do they hear me? Mm-hmm. Right? So there's that awareness of even myself before I walk into the conversation. And when we can realize that, then really, we can guide a conversation to a place that we want it to go. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's incredibly... It's incredibly humbling uh, to, or it should be incredibly humbling if you are to go and to speak with someone about something that in your family that you see in their life that's not just a an event. It didn't just happen last Thursday, but something that seems like it is a something that's mastering them. It, it, it's not that you are wanting to point something out so that they feel small and you feel bigger, um, or that they are worse and you are better. But I see this, and I'm concerned, and I love you, and I don't want that this is, it, it, it really is hurting my heart that this may be something that has a grip on you that's holding you tighter uh, than you can imagine. It is incredibly humbling to go to someone and say that to them, uh, because you are having to admit and acknowledge before the Lord, not before them necessarily, but before the Lord, that there are things in my life that I know I don't see clearly. And for for whatever reason, and maybe this is a good way to a test to ask yourself, uh, why is it that I want to go speak with this person about this? Am I doing it in love because I do care for them and I care for God's glory in their life? Or am I doing it because I have been offended and there is a wrong that I want to correct and the way that I'm going to do that is with my words. And so I want them to feel the way I felt when whatever they did happened and so I'm going to go speak to exact it um, so that it, they feel the same way. And I think if that's where you're coming from, that's probably the time not to go speak with them, right? Um, that's likely not the right way to do it. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't deal with things when you've been hurt. I just mean the motivation for how you do it certainly has an impact on how you're going to speak. Yeah, you know, uh, for 20 years I've had a broken relationship with my brother. Hmm. And Or that I didn't care or I didn't hear him. And so when I realized, wait a minute, you know, my approach is wrong, actually. As a Mm. believer, Mm -hmm. I'm hurting him. And so then when I realized, wow, I really want this conversation to end with restoration, right? Mm -hmm. With peace so that then I can have another conversation with him. Because right now, every time I talk to him, it's a closed slam door, right? And you don't want to talk to me for six months. So when I realized, wow, um, I want this conversation to go to this place where we have forgiveness and actually a step forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I had those tools to navigate that conversation where he didn't look like the bad guy, but I actually heard him and showed respect and honor to him. Mm -hmm. He he, he left encouraged. He Mm -hmm. felt that I loved him. And, you know, wow. Does that mean that was easy? No, it was 
mission easy? No, it's it's going to again take another step of me reaching out and really saying, "Hey, I see you. Mm-hmm. you know, I see where you are. I hear you." Um, and then that's what it's about, really. Mm-hmm. It were you going to say something, Jim? There's a lot to say, but I think that to get to go into those areas that. I think need to be addressed mm. is that we just don't have time for that. Sure. A part of it is um, that attitude that you approach them is between you and the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's where it needs to be built out between me and the Lord is how I'm going to address this person. Um, when I used to counsel people and I would go and talk with people, I always started it off that I didn't come here to condemn you. I have, but we need to talk about these issues. Mm-hmm. I'm not coming to condemn you. But when you speak to somebody about a deficiency, a sin, or whatever, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to acknowledge that because it's not about you, what you're talking about. You know, it's mm-hmm. not you bringing it. It is when you bring it, it, it increases their conviction mm-hmm. that they are what they are. Yeah. And they, that is hurtful, and they're going to respond toward you, not toward that. And so there's something that we need to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that you don't go and talk with people. Right. And I think that you can you can do all that you can to address the issue and to have a meaningful conversation. But the the word of God is offensive. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you're not in that uh, that place to where you or being fed, so forth, by the Word of God, is offensive. And it causes strife when you are sharing that Word. Mm-hmm. And that's just it's the offense of the Gospel. We can't take that away. Mm-hmm. We can be all that we can be, and it's easy and uncondemning. But it's not, it's not me that's causing a problem. If I've gone to the Lord and I've asked guidance and so forth, mm-hmm. but it is the Word of God that explodes this issue. I listened to a talk recently, and I'm. It may seem as though I'm jumping around here, but I related to what Jim is saying. The talk that I listened to was between some college students and a, a speaker who was sharing about uh, the standard of righteousness in the Bible for marriage and also for um, for having children. And I think particularly I'm seeing these videos be more popular because of the day that we're living in and the decisions that are made uh, about Roe versus Wade and, and other, other topics. Uh, so perhaps these discussions have been having, been being happening on college campuses, but they seem to be more, at least in my awareness, um, recently in the last couple of years. And in the discussion, uh, one of the young ladies who spoke back to the speaker, when it was her time at the microphone, she said, well, well, you're saying this. You're saying I can't choose to have an abortion. And he said, no, wait a minute. No, I'm not saying this. 
The word of God says this. I'm telling you what the word of God says, but your offense is not ultimately with me, the person who's telling me, telling you. Your offense is that I'm saying uh, this is the word of God and it is a standard and it doesn't change. That's what's hurting your heart. That's why your hackles are up and, and you're offended at what I'm saying. And that's what Jim is saying, that there is offense just by nature of it being the truth. And the, the man said, and I, I think he is correct, that this wouldn't be offensive to you if there wasn't something deep down inside of you that you knew there is an authority you have to answer to, and you don't get the option to say, I won't do it. Like a child storming off in a classroom throwing books and chairs, and I don't want to be in this classroom anymore. You don't get to do that uh, with the God of the universe. You don't get to say, I don't owe my existence to you. I don't own worship to you. You absolutely do. Uh, you, can, you can play um, at that. But one day, ultimately, we will all answer to him for the things that we've done. And so anyway, what, what Jim was saying, that the, the gospel itself, the truth of God's word, is by nature offensive. Um, but I do think what Julie's saying is we don't have to be offensive on top of it. We don't have to add to, to what is already a, a difficult pill to swallow. Let me, let me uh, go a different direction for just a moment. Um, I've quoted a verse a couple times about visiting the sins of the fathers. And I just I want to ask something about how we view God in doing that. Um, does anybody remember the next part of that verse? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons in the third and fourth generation. Do you remember the next few words? Well, and one of them, and I, one of these places says, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And so thinking about how God deals with us, um, thinking about how he treats us and, and how he does this in our own families. Uh, there are many times where we, we feel, and I'm using that word on purpose, we feel like we have been sentenced with something. That God is judging us by allowing this to continue in our hearts and be a struggle for us. And he is judging our children because of mistakes that we made. Now, I realize we're, we're, we're not swimming in, in uh, shallow pools at the moment. Uh, but let me just ask you about this. Um, just from what you know of the gospel, what you know of uh, the scriptures... Is that how our Heavenly Father conducts Himself with His children? I'm seeing some no's. He doesn't, he doesn't judge us that way. And why does He not? As a believer, He is seeing the righteousness of Christ on us. And because of that... All of the judgment that we are due, all the punishment that we are due, went where? Jesus. To Jesus on the cross. So we have to, and, and this is a change in our mind, and I, I realize that I'm saying this, and it, it's not something that happens just one time. Oh, I dealt with that 30 years ago um, when I believed or when I was baptized or, or when I uh, was accepted by the session as part of the membership of the Lord's church. This is something that you have to believe and hear and preach to your soul every day. Otherwise, you will give in 
to believing the lies that the enemy wants you to believe that this is happening today in your life or in your child's life and you're watching it and you can't do anything about it. Maybe an adult child. And you're saying, if I had just dealt with this 20 years ago, my son or my daughter wouldn't be struggling with this now. That is a lie the enemy wants you to believe. It depends on you. And if you had if you had taken care of it, if you had nipped it in the bud, this would have gone away. But that's not the truth. Now, certainly, is there something maybe you should have done? Perhaps. And I'd say if we were to all make a list, we have a very long one. But God doesn't treat His children that way. That He's grinding us into bit, in, bits in judgment. Now, certainly there are things that we, we pass on to our children. And we give to them. And we can even see it in grandchildren, perhaps. But those are things that the Lord is choosing to use to draw us to himself. All of these things, the things that we're talking about, what what Jacob said to his sons, and we know Jacob and his sons didn't have the best relationship. I think everyone who, who's been here for some weeks would agree with that, that they were not on the best of terms. And even at the end of the book, after they have buried him, what do the brothers do when they go back to Joseph? They say something among themselves and they go to Joseph and say, by the way, dad told us you weren't there. But by the way, dad told us that um, you're supposed to forgive everything and and take care of us. They're already acting out of what? Fear. Dad's gone and they immediately have gone to fear. We, We will use in our reactions what is the strongest weakness that we have. We will not normally except by God's grace, run, run to the strength of, of faith. In, in moments of crisis, we will run to what our strongest weakness is, and we will stay there apart from God's grace. And it's what he said to them. The, the brother said to him, I'm, I should say, in chapter 50, they saw that he was gone, perhaps he's going to hate us, and he's going to repay us for the evil that we did to him. What had he already told them? He understood that God had sent him to Egypt. Yes, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to preserve their families. So if he said that in their hearing, was it just nice words? He wasn't saying it for the Egyptians. He'd send them all out of the room. So he told them, this is why God brought me here. And he said it three times in that one section. And the first thing that they they did after burying their dad was, we've got to cover our own backsides because here it comes. And isn't that the way that sometimes we respond in, in, in moments of crisis or moments of difficulty? We don't, we don't always, sometimes we do, but we don't always turn and look to the Lord in faith. We, we get in crisis mode, we get anxious, we get fearful, we're afraid of everything, and, and we run to the worst possible scenario. We're all alone, we have to figure it out, and, and God has left us. And it's just simply not true. And he hasn't done that for our children either. By faith, we raise our children to know him. We, we bring them to the ordinance of the, of the Lord in the church for the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they are means of grace to train them to know that they are part of a covenant family. That God has placed his name on them. Just as he placed his name on us and we entrust them to him. That's one of the first things that we do when we bring our babies to the baptismal font. We say, Lord, this child belongs to you. 
I'm entrusting this child to you. And I'm acknowledging you love this baby more than I do. Even though, how could that even be possible? Especially for a mother. But that's what we're, that's what we're saying. So this idea of visiting the, the sins of the father on the third and fourth generation, believing that God doesn't treat his children like orphans. And I asked a question earlier, and we got into some of it. How do you deal with an issue like anger in the gospel? And, and we've, we've covered some of this ground, and we could probably do it over several weeks. But one of the first things that we said and that Pam mentioned is that you have to acknowledge that it's there. And I think that happens in degrees and over time. Uh, but I think you also have to depend on the Lord even in that. Even in your acknowledging that it's there, you depend on the Lord. But if you can't come to the Lord in repentance with that, if you have to hold on to it, then you know what has a stronghold on your heart. You know that it, it, it's self-love, it's self-preservation. I can't let go of this. There is not power in the gospel to deal with this. And you've got to be able to take that belief and take that lie and, and lay it at the cross. And you do that daily. If you struggle with anger or you struggle with anxiety or fear, that is not something that you deal with once on the, on the 20th and then walk away from it. It is every day. Every day I give that to the Lord and pray for grace. And I cry out to Him for mercy. Lord, don't let me... Ruin myself in this, but you cannot carry with you the weight of, Lord, don't let me ruin my family with this or my children. That's not yours to bear. You've got to believe that as the truth. Now, yes, we can certainly hurt one another and we can, we can hurt relationships, but he doesn't put on you as his children the weight of your children, the way I'm talking about feeling judgment and, and punishment and everything else. Um, in the time that we have left, we have just a few moments. I just wanted to ask if, if anybody has any comments or, or questions or to clarify anything that we've said. And it's okay if you don't. Mm-hmm. But it seems like that's the very thing that just keeps you close to him. Kind of like the sheep does a broken leg, you know, he's carrying along. And I just I just found to be a great comfort to understand mm-hmm. that even though I may struggle with some of the same things over and over, as quickly as I can take them to the Lord is the best thing I can do with it and just confess it around again. Mm-hmm. Um, just help me deal with it. Because I can't do it alone. And to believe as you run to the Lord with it, you're not running hoping that there is is not wrath. You are running, and you should encourage your heart in this. And if it takes writing down a scripture verse on a note card, putting it on a window or a mirror or beside the kitchen sink, on a cabinet or in the in the cab of your truck, believing and knowing that when I run to the Lord by faith, there is grace. If you're running hoping there isn't wrath, you will not run to it long. But if you run knowing the well is deep of God's grace because of 
Because of the costliness that purchased that grace, you know that it it doesn't run out for those who come to Him by faith. And if that's true, then I can run to Him in my weakness. I can run. I don't have to tiptoe or or stop off at other places and, and, and take care of my pet sins and salve my wounds myself. Run to food or pleasure or anything else. I can run to Him because there's grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that when you hit that block or that whistle, there is an understanding of what you need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, the same thing is what we're talking about. You know, we practice going to the Lord. We practice, you know, reading His Word, praying to Him. You know, handing those things over to Him in the moment that we do have to face that situation. Mm-hmm. We're ready. Mm-hmm. That's right. Let me pray for us, Father. I thank you for this time together this morning to look at Your Word to talk about who we are before you. And Lord, we acknowledge before you that we are sinners, as we will do in our worship service in just a few moments. We are sinners in the sight of God, and we do deserve your displeasure, save for your sovereign mercy that you have poured out on us in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have filled each of us with your Holy Spirit as believers, as a testimony to us of your presence, but also of your intentions to keep us as your children. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us in the struggles that each of us have every day, things that we even have struggled with on this day, uh, that you are with us and that you are supplying grace for us, that it is not about our struggle, it is not about our efforts to try to do better, but about your movement towards us that is irresistible. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as your children to rejoice in that today. Today is a day of of Sabbath rest and enjoyment in you, that you have done all that is required by your law. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your church. And we thank you for this church, that we could come here together today and worship you. And we pray that you would be glorified in this worship service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.